So I am really excited to introduce this week's guest, author and TED speaker, Nathaniel A. Turner, JD, MALS, is a self-described humanity propulsion engineer. Nate is the author of several books, including the children's book series, The Amazing World of STEM, and his history-making book, Raising Superman. Turner's appeared on many media outlets, including The Washington Post, Black Enterprise, Fatherly, iHeartRadio, The Good Men Project, SiriusXM, and U.S. News and World Reports. Corporations, municipalities, and NGOs like Anthem Inc., the National Collegiate Athletic Association, the National Education Association, the U.S. Department of Education, the City of Indianapolis, and the National Society of Black Engineers invite Nate to share his practical message for living the life we've always imagined while also serving the greater good. A modern day Renaissance man is evidenced by the diversity of his education, including a bachelor in accounting, masters in history and theology, and doctor of jurisprudence combined with a wide range of personal experiences and professions, are only a part of what makes his wide ranging presentations can't miss events. What truly sets Nate apart from the others is his unique, oft-times comical ability, not only to see the world differently, but to challenge his audiences in an edutaining way to live outside the box so that the world might be able to experience us at our very best. As a zealous advocate that every person has an opportunity to maximize their human potential, Nate regularly shares through books, courses, workshops, and conferences, a backward design life process initially created to help his unborn child become an intellectually ambitious, great global citizen who would meet the rigorous education requirements of the top colleges and universities without means of wealth, privilege, legacy, status, fraud, bribery, cheating, or Adobe Photoshop. Turner's son not only met Harvard's admission benchmarks, that is test scores in the top 1%, 33 college credits by his junior year, proficiency in four languages, and left home after his junior year in high school to play soccer in Brazil and started a foundation to address teen homelessness. He eviscerated the profile criterion by his 16th birthday. At present, Turner's son is a fourth year electrical and computer engineering PhD candidate at one of the world's premier graduate engineering schools. Today, those tools, techniques, and strategies initially created to help his Gen Zer thrive in the fourth industrial revolution are educational and life development staples for students and parents of all ages and organizations worldwide. Through his 501c3, the League of Extraordinary Parents, he provides parents with a template to independently and tactically raise children from conception to college. Nate works to help more children use education to improve their lives, communities, and society at large. So I'd like to welcome Nathaniel Turner to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Barad. Thank you, Nathaniel, for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me, or or did I invite myself, but thank you for having (laughs) me. (laughs) Well, you know that I like to start with two questions. So if you're ready, I'll ask those two questions. I think I'm ready. Okay. Nathaniel Turner. Who are you and how did you become who you are today? Wow. So who am I? I usually tell people I'm just a guy. That's 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 my answer. Um, how did I get here? Well, my mom 
56 years ago, uh, delivered me a, a week ago yesterday. Um, but I'm originally from Gary, Indiana. And um, I've been writing and speaking in public now for, I don't know, the better of the past 10 plus years or so. I'm probably here today, most importantly, because I have a son who decided to publish some letters that I wrote him throughout his childhood. And it is those letters that sort of, if you want to say jettisoned me to, to some little small stage, um, he's responsible for that. So I am who I am mostly as an adult because of the child that I, that I have in my life. Wow. That's, I think a lot of parents don't even recognize how much their children shape who they become as real adults, not the little baby adults that you are when you're you're in your 20s or whatever. Right. Everything, you're a solid adult. Yeah, I would say everything that I've done it to me that has any value or meaning in the last 26 years is because of him. So tell us about the letters. What was about these letters that made them so special? Sure. So um, I had a, as I tell people, I had a tumultuous childhood and I didn't have any memories of my relationship with my father as a child that were positive. My mother would say to me all the time that you and your dad were really close when you were small. And, and I was like, I have no recollection of that. Only thing I remember are all the bad things. And what I didn't want to do as a, as a father was to replicate what my father had done. So many times when I talk to young fathers, I hear about how bad things were for them. And then essentially we just repeat and rinse and start over the same bad thing. And I wanted to do something different. So I started making notes about what I hoped for my, for my then unborn child. And when that child was born, um, it, something happened, it, something clicked. And I, I just wanted to, all of a sudden, I just wanted to do more than just make notes. So I started writing him and I wrote him stuff that he wouldn't have seen until, until about age two. And he walked to the mailbox with me one afternoon and asked me for mail. I got mail at the mailbox, mine were bills, and he said, Daddy, where's my mail? I was like, dude, there's nothing good about the mailbox, trust me. <laughs> junk or bills, and, and for me, they're both the same. <laughs> so, but Daddy, where's my mail? And so um, he con continued, as we walked across the street, he continued to ask for mail, and I got in the car that afternoon, went to Target, bought some green cards and some postcards, came home and started writing him notes or writing him on the green cards and postcards. And Michelle, what happened was I couldn't, I didn't have enough space in the green cards or the postcards. Mm -hmm. There was so much stuff pouring out of me from my own childhood as I looked at him that I found myself needing more space. So I started writing him letters and um, I just continued to write him letters until this, to this day. In fact, this morning I got up and I thought about something that we did around this time of the year. And I said, you know what? I need to write him about a memory that I have that's, that's relevant to what he's doing in his life right now. That is so beautiful. And the power of a letter, a handwritten letter, we lose that a little with email and everything. How do your thoughts come together differently in a letter? So the, the letters, while I thought I was giving him what he asked for, I realized I was giving myself something too. So for one, I wanted to share with him the sort of this process for life. 
So I said, okay, listen, I'm going to write a two-year-old, but I'm not going to write him as if he's a two-year-old. I'm going to write him as if he's 32. I'm not going to use two-year-old language. I'm going to use 32-year-old language, primarily because I want to expand his vocabulary. I also wanted to expand my own vocabulary. So, so here's a good opportunity to do that. But I wanted to write him lessons that if something were to happen to me, because I, I, I never thought I would live as long as I've lived. So I, I assume that I would be gone. Either I'd be gone, I would mess it up. And the only memories he would have of me would be through these letters. So I wanted to make sure that whatever I said to him had some value beyond just age two, three, four, five. He started to read because of the letters that I wrote him. So when I would come home with the come home after after work, I'd go to the office, mail the postcards to him. A few days I'd get home and he'd say, Hey daddy, today I got mail. And I'd say, Yes, I know. And he said, Daddy, read it to me. And I said, No, I'm not gonna keep reading. I'm not gonna write and and read, dude. And he said, Well, cool. Well, teach me to read. So, you know, along around age two or so, he learned to read. And he learned to read inspired by this idea he wanted to read his father's letters. Uh, as, as I got older, and he got older, I realized that the letters were a great way to communicate with him. I'm kind of an emotional person. I don't know if you can tell that today. And so sometimes in my, in my excitement or in my frustration, he would look in my face and predetermine what it was that I was thinking or feeling. And so any, any words that would come out would be completely dismissed. But when I would write him, all he could do is focus on the words that were on the page. And I could make sure that I removed the emotion from the letter unless I wanted to actually convey emotion. So it was real helpful in that regard. And, and so um, I wrote him like that way until, until he was 16. Um, and before he left to go to Brazil, I'm sure we'll talk about that. I packed the letters up in a binder and I gave them to him and said, you know, we're going to be 7,000 miles apart. I doubt very seriously that you're going to want to hear what your father has to say to you from 7,000 miles away. But I've probably mostly told you everything you needed to know. And I put them, put some of the letters in a binder, I think 34, 35 letters in a binder. And I gave them to him and I left him with the letters and, and came back to America while he stayed in Brazil. Wow. Okay. You said a couple, I do want to talk about that right. among other things, but you said something that really struck me. Why did you think that you were going to mess it up or not be there in some way? What gave you that thought? So, so when you, most, most men model themselves after the primary man in their house. My father messed it up. So I had no reason to believe that I was going to be better than my father. I mean, we like to believe that we're going to be better than someone. And we say it all the time. But, but oftentimes we become exactly what we see. So I've seen some terrible things. I've seen my father do some terrible things. And I, and I wasn't sure that I would always be able to get out of my own way. I'm, again, I'm a, I'm a guy from Gary who was told the best I could ever hope to do with my life was join the military. Um, my high school guidance counselor said, you know, you, you're not college material. The best you can do, hope to do is join. It, it, that's your best hope is that they would, uh, that the military would accept you. So I wasn't a guy that was, you know, maybe on, on the outside appears like you have lots of confidence about what you're going to do and become, but I wasn't very confident about, about that. And I certainly was not confident about being a father. I mean, in fact, I tell people all the time that when my wife and I left the hospital, 
you know, and they kick you out 24 hours to 48 hours after the baby's born. The only instructions I had on what to do was about putting the car seat in. I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing with a child. I, mean, I, I, I had no idea. And so you'd say, well, how am I going to be a parent? Well, the only parent that you know is the parent that parented you. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, how do I, how do I not make the same mistakes this person did? So I wasn't sure that I was going to, I was going to be a very good f- father. I certainly wasn't sure I was going to be a very good husband. Um, and that's still up for debate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Do we need to get your wife in here to ask you might, her? You might, you might need to, hey, right. It's all relative, right? <laughs> and, and so... I wasn't, I wasn't certain. And, and then the things that I wanted to do earlier in my life, I was fairly certain that historically I'd, I'd never seen the, the people who, who modeled what I wanted to do live very long. So I wasn't sure I was going to be around. Wow. Okay. What did you want to do like that? I wanted initially to be the foremo- foremost um, civil rights leader in the country. I'd gone to, I, my bachelor's degree is in accounting uh, my master's in master's degrees are in history and theology, and I have a law degree. So I thought, when we take a look at the civil rights struggle, which today I would just, I think of it differently. I would just say a human rights struggle. I said, well, we've we've never had one person who understood all of those various elements. A person who understood the economic component, which is where Dr. King was moving to. A person who understood the the legal component, like a Thurgood Marshall. And, and typically all of our, you know, I shouldn't say all, many of our leaders come from a theological background and we've never had a person who, who had all of those things combined. And so I had all of those things combined mm-hmm. and I figured, well, either I'm going to die or, or I'm going to be assassinated in my character. Either way, it's not going to work out too well for me and for my family. So that, that's what I wanted to do initially. Wow. But you seem to have moved toward education as your focus, which is, some would argue, is related, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, How did that transition happen? Well, yeah, I had a wife and a child, and so, so I had that, they, they forced me to pivot. Um, so, Michelle, my name, I'm named after Nat Turner. Mm-hmm. So, in some ways, I tell people I didn't really have a choice. Uh, my parents intentionally named me, my father in particular, intentionally named me after his favorite, uh, other than Malcolm X, his favorite mm. um, s- human rights advocate, Nat Turner. My mother thought she was naming me a good Christian name, Nathaniel, Hebrew meaning gift of God. <laughs> my father was like, nope, <laughs> we're, we're, we're naming him after Nat, Nat Turner. He wanted to name me Malcolm. My mother was having nothing to do with that in 1965. <laughs> You're not going to be named Malcolm. So um, I really kind of had no choice. Growing up in Gary, every time I stepped in the classroom, every teacher asked me, do you know who you are? I'm like, oh my God, yes, I know who I'm, I know who I'm named after. Can we talk about something else? Um, but when I got, when I got married, um, and I and I was again doing a little of that stuff. It, it, as an undergrad, I formed the Black Student Union at Butler University. Got the Minority Student Affairs Department started. Every I tell the students when I go back, every um, ethnic or social organization that's based around race or inequity or equality exists now because. In 1983, there were 38 students of color out of 3,000 students on the campus, and it was it was us. And I can't take all the credit for it. I was the founding president, 
that got those things off the ground. And we started a statewide organization for minority students in Indiana. And when I went to law school at Valpo, we we had a little um, a little episode and closed the campus and made national and, and international news. And and I was the spokesperson for that. So when I got married, my wife worked for the university and she said, um, you can't keep walking around here calling people masses, right? <laughs> I work I work at this institution, right? right? I'm like, yeah, but it's true. <laughs> these young men are not graduating. These young women are not graduating. So that that sort of changed my perspective. I had a wife and a, and a child, and and they didn't ask for that. So I'm like, I, I guess I have to pivot and do. That's not something that they they should have to a burden that they should have to bear. So I pivoted. And with all of that, you used your combination of your letters, your background, and just sounds like just plain focus fathering to help your son raise to a pretty amazing level. Yeah, my, um, my focus turned to just figuring out how to be a good husband and a great father. I mean, just that, that was, that was my focus. And so I guess in some ways, the same things that allowed me to figure out how to get to college, graduate from college, somehow get to graduate school and law school. I took those, those same tools and strategies and implemented those things to become a, to become a father and to, to help my son. And I always would say to folks that my child didn't ask to be here, which mm -hmm. I don't think enough parents understand that way. Like, we say we want to be a parent and then we don't want to be a parent. So like, but the child didn't ask to be here. You can't send the child back now. You don't, you don't like how the child is behaving. Like you maybe should have had a plan, a, a more of a plan to begin with, because this is what children do. So yeah, I turned my, I turned my attention to them. I would say one last thing in, in graduate school, this is probably the thing that helped convince me. I, my graduate school thesis was, supposed to be a 25 page paper. And I was writing about the African church in America. I didn't call it the African American church, but I, I titled the paper, Amazing Disgrace. Mm. How the African church in America has underdeveloped the, the African community in America. Mm -hmm. And after my wife read that paper, which then turned to like a 150 page paper, it went from 25 pages to 150 pages. I was like, you know, I should publish this. And the look she had on her face <laughs> was like, dude, they go, everybody's gonna burn us at a stake <laughs> if you if you publish that. So I'm like, okay, all right, may, maybe not. Maybe I should, maybe I should do something different. Well, tell me, uh, now you've got me curious about the paper. All right. What are your indictments of what I'm gonna call the black church for lack sure. of a better phrase? Absolutely. What, what are some of your indictments against the black church? Okay, so I'll say this. I spent a brief period in the pulpit. Mm -hmm. So I was privy to seeing some things that were very disconcerting. So again- and which I'm, denomination? Do you mind if I ask? No, no problem. Uh, AME. Okay. Right. Um, but what I saw, for example, in Gary is that there were at the time, there were over hundred churches in the city of Gary for a city of about 70,000 people. Um, every Every corner there's a church, every corner there's a liquor store, every corner there's a 
a place that you can buy chicken or fish. Um, but we have no, no banks. We have no hospitals. We have no hope. So, so my first complaint about the church was, was the economic standing of the church that every Sunday you're collecting all of this, all these dollars from, from impoverished people. And yet there are no institutions that exist to help those impoverished people change the quality of life. So mm -hmm. that was one of them. One of my other issues was the status of black women in the church. That 70% of parishioners are black women, the folks who support the church. And at the time, you so there was very few black women in the pulpit. So I would just qualify that as, that as leadership. And I'd say, well, this is interesting. On the one hand, you tell a black woman she can be anything she wants to be, but she can't be a pastor. She can't lead, she can't lead the church, but she could be president. She could be a dentist, a doctor, a lawyer, but she can't be something that doesn't even require any real education. Like this mm. is sort of an amazing statement. Um, I was concerned about the, the continuation of this use of color of black and white and, and the recognition that there are no, that most people are associated with a landmass, and there's no place called black land. There's no place called white land. I'm like, these are social constructs, and we we know it, and yet we continue to buy in it. So there was there was things like that. I think, and I, I just I went on and on, like breaking down every <laughs> social structure, socioeconomic structure, and I'm just like, this is a disgrace that a nation of people that I think at the time within within the nation are collective gross national spending would have made us like the seventh largest nation in the world. Mm -hmm. I said, well, we don't have anything. We don't, we, we don't have, we don't control any, anything. In fact, we controlled more after the Emancipation Proclamation and Reconstruction than we do, this was in 1993-94, than we did in 1993-94. So, right. no. Yeah, there's some argument that desegregation did us a disservice. From that perspective yeah well and i would say and i would say we could look at desegregation but i also think like it is like it is us so like when you look at for example grocery stores and i know we're probably going in a direction that this was not intended but folks always talk about food deserts and i said do you understand why food deserts exist if we we're mad at the at the um grocery stores for not being in black communities but the truth is that grocery stores not in black communities because black folks who have the capacity to support the grocery stores have all moved out and live in white communities. Mm. Mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I don't live in the, I don't live in Gary anymore. So if my um, spending power makes me uh, an upper middle class person and the grocery store is intended to serve upper middle class people and there are no upper middle class people or not certainly not enough in the community, well, then they're going to move. But I said, as a person who works in the financial industry now, I'd say all the time to folks, you know, we're very duplicitous in our arguments, which is that on the one hand, we're asking corporations to do more and do better. At the same time, we're counting on those corporations to deliver us returns on our 401ks. Mm -hmm. And so you can't have it both ways. I don't, well, I'm, I am gonna push back on this, but sure. oh, good, from good. this perspective, what about socially conscious companies now that try to do some social good while making a profit? And I'm thinking of like 
Toms and some of these others that, you know, buy a pair of shoes and we donate a pair of shoes, that kind of thing. Is there not space for that model? Not saying that you got to donate the food, but yeah, maybe you have some stores that are less profitable or maybe even lose a little bit of money because they're supported by the other stores to some extent to make sure that everybody has access. Sure. No, I, I, I'm all for um, this idea of this social awareness or social consciousness, and some people call it social capitalism. I'm mm -hmm. all for it. But, but in America, the way that corporations are, are constituted, the sole responsibility of corporation is to maximize the shareholder's wealth. So when, when that is why you exist, you have a hard time getting people to continue to invest in your company if your company is then taking its resources and putting it someplace else. I, I'm agree, I agree with you completely. But when clients come to me and they say, um, how did I do this year? And if you say, well, you did 15%. And, and I had this happen to me one year. Um, I had a gentleman come to me, his, his account performed phenomenally, but his neighbors did a few percentage more. And I said, well, that's, <laughs> that wasn't what you said you wanted to do. And all he could think of was with, I want to compete. So, so uh, that, that was, um, interesting. Yeah. That, I, and I'd say the other thing is when I say we're a little duplicitous. So I'd say, for example, if you go to target, or I want to use Target. There's any store that has a self-checkout lane. Mm -hmm. I just ask people, which lane do you choose? It's five o'clock. You just got off work. You're tired. The store is, is getting crowded. There's four or five young brothers and sisters working at the cash registers um, and, ba and bagging. There's 20 lines that say self-checkout. Which, which one do you choose? Or are you asking me this question? Sure. Because it varies. <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. Because I expect, see, I don't expect to go into a Walmart or a Target or anything like that and get out quickly. Okay. I, I think I, I got over that when I was living in California. I'm like, why are all these people here? There's so <laughs> many people. Why aren't they like at work or, or at church or where, depending on the time I was going, I'm like, y'all aren't supposed to be here now. I know how to go to Walmart when there's nobody there. Um, so I don't, I no longer expect to get out of those types of stores quickly. So I okay. only go to them when I intend to have the time. Got you. Well, so, so my point that I ask folks is that most people tell me, well, I, I take the self-checkout line and I said, well, that's, that's fine. But then don't complain. Don't tell me about how much you care about your community. Because when mm -hmm. you take the self-checkout line, someone like my son writes an algorithm that determines how many bags of groceries you'll do on your own. And the next time you come in, there's not three people, there's now two. Right. You don't need them, right? Because we've eliminated them because we figured out that you're willing to bag your groceries, not get any discount whatsoever under the pretext that you're so busy that you got to hurry up and get the five minutes that you would spend spending time having somebody bag your groceries is not as important as you rushing out. So then they'll lose a job. And you'll have your your groceries faster, um, but those people are going to go back to the community, and they're going to struggle. Mm, I and see. That, I see how you say it's duplicitous. I understand that. Yeah. I think it's interesting, though, from a because you're also competing with technology. Mm -hmm. So it's not just once they know they can do something at the corporate level, 
then they often implement it and we just get used to it. So it's kind of a chicken and egg thing too. Yeah. Well, again, if the corporations exist to maximize shareholders' wealth and the most expensive thing that I have is labor, buy labor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I don't yeah. know how we got, I probably got you sidetracked, so I apologize. No, it's fine. No, but this is what I like to hear. I like to hear people's thoughts on these things. I think they're important topics. And I don't think they get enough time, you know, people discussing them, you know, in a, dis, a slightly dispassionate way so that, you know, <laughs> it's not all these emotions flying and crazy talk coming out. So I appreciate that. Oh, my um, <laughs> but I, I really, I do want to get back to your son because you mentioned uh, leaving him in Brazil at 16 years old. And let me just say, for those of you who don't know, Brazil is not a place where you go around just dropping kids off in the middle of the world. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> you know? So what brought no. him to Brazil? How did that come about? And, and all, tell me about your son. Sure. So my son's name is Naeem. His middle name is Kahari. Uh, he has two last names. They're hyphenated, Turner, hyphen Bandelli. His full name means he is a benevolent king despite being born from slavery and born away from home. He was not named until the eighth day. We took him home from the hospital with his original birth certificate just said, baby boy, Turner. Um, we, we had known you, Michelle. I got a feeling you'd have been part of the village. You would have gotten a letter from us with 10 male names and 10 female names. And we would ask you to come over and spend time with him and assess his personality and his, his, his characteristics and help us to name him. Our, our thought was that we were not going to be able to raise him by ourselves. That we truly believed it takes a village, and we wanted to create a village, a village composed of really bright, intelligent people, not the, some of the village idiots that raised us. And uh, <laughs> and we wanted to. We figured that people were invested, this, similarly to the way that the 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 Mufasa um, held Simba over the Pride Land. We thought we might be onto something. So that's. That's the, the origin story, sort of naive. My wife and I wrote Harvard before he was born to request a, uh, an application. The application was for him, for mm -hmm. this unborn child. And we took the, apart the application from Harvard and came up with this template that we wanted to follow to use to help to raise him. We didn't know at the time when we wrote them for the application. We were just thinking about the academic requirements and mm -hmm. we're thinking, Hey, if, you know, how much different would life have been for us if we could have gone to better colleges, you know, mm -hmm. you're searching for jobs after law, law school. I'm like, I wouldn't have to search for, for a job if I had gone to Harvard, <laughs> right? <laughs> they would have been, he would have been searching for me. So, yeah. so how do, what do I do for my child? So we got the application and, and embedded in the application were three, three things that we now call a life template. Of course, Harvard asked for students that do well academically, but then there was this, this other thing, second thing is that they wanted students who were world citizens. And then they, thirdly, they wanted students who cared for something greater than themselves. Hmm. And we thought, huh, that's very interesting. So we've now turned those three things into what we call intellectual ambition, um, global and cultural competency, and humanitarian drive. And we use those three elements to, to raise this young man. So that... Yeah, the goal was that when he was 14, I wanted him to be done with high school. Okay. Um, my wife thought that that was utterly ridiculous. Uh, that, <laughs> that was that was too soon. I think today, if you talk to her, she would say I was right. 
Um, but at any rate, he was done by 16. He was done at 16. He had finished all his high school uh, coursework. He earned 33 college credits. He was fluent in four languages and decided that he did not want to waste another year, senior year in high school, that he wanted to chase his dream of playing professional soccer. He needed to lead a country he believed to do that. So um, I hired a virtual assistant. His name is Nathan. He lives in uh, Bangalore, India. And Nathan found 11 soccer clubs across the globe who were willing to have him come in for a tryout. Our favorite soccer team was the Brazilian national team. Mm -hmm. And so when we saw Brazil on the list, like, hey, let's contact <laughs> Brazil. They offered him an opportunity to come over for some trials. We went to Brazil for some trials. We never saw him play with more joy than we did when he was in Brazil. And we said, okay, we got to figure out um, what to do. And he said, I've already figured it out. I'm staying. <laughs> and so our, our son stayed in Brazil. So while his, his classmates returned to school in August, he was in Brazil playing soccer. That's amazing. That is amazing. Yep. I, I am. So you have to understand why I'm flabbergasted. First of all, your wife was right. I think. I think your wife was right. And I, no, I'm going to tell you why I think she All was right. right. So I'm okay. not going to just drop that and leave it. No, no, I think she was right because what I feel is that high school is such a challenging time emotionally that kids kind of need that time to catch up with themselves a little bit. You know, you've got the hormones racing, you've got all kinds of distractions that could come into play. And it's almost like the terrible twos, or it has the potential to be, if you're right. not, and it's not that kids are bad, it's that they're just pushing their boundaries a little bit. And I think it's better to hold them a little closer during that time. So I agree with your wife. I don't know if she would really say that you were right, but if she no, would, no, she, I defer. She, I, <laughs> I, I, think, I think the part that she would say I was right about was, I, well, so let me tell you why I said 14. So what I did was I said, okay, listen, children spend uh, age five or so to 17 in high school. They spend 12 years. Mm -hmm. um, every summer, three months out of every every summer, they're at, they're at home doing whatever. Mm -hmm. I said, we don't live in an agrarian society anymore. Um, we're the main, main folks that talk about this learning loss that happens in the summer. So why would I ever, why would we ever stop learning? To me, it just seems ridiculous that you're, that you, mm -hmm. anyone would ever say, let's stop learning. So right. I said, so if we, if all we did was not stop, we could finish four years early. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's all I said. So, so let's just not stop. And so, um, she wasn't having it, but, <laughs> but he did start high school as a seventh grader. So he, so he did start early. Mm -hmm. And like I said, he, by, by 16, his junior year, we were standing on top of the Grand Canyon and it was in December of 2011. And I was going on about how great it felt, how, how alive I felt standing on top of the Canyon. And he was like, yeah, it's, it's great. I feel alive too. And he said, and by the way, dad, next year, speaking of alive, I'm not going back to high school. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay. He said, you always talking about dreaming and, and taking chances and living your life in a, in a moment. Like, I don't know why we go back. It's just a waste of time. 
I've, mm -hmm. I've, I've done everything that you, that you've asked me to do. I've done everything I've got, you know, I'm just like, you know, you're, you're right. So, all right. Okay. So now I put my foot in my mouth and now I have to figure out how I'm going, how I'm going to get a child out of the country and convince his mother who doesn't know that we're having this conversation. She's just yelling at us to get off the edge of the, of the canyon. <laughs> You don't tumble down because moms worry about that. Yeah, you're 3,000 <laughs> feet up in the air. She wants you to, to get away from the edge. And he and I are standing on the edge. And so um, I'm like, okay, but this is kind of how we have to live. You have to live on the edge. Mm -hmm. And so he said, yes, I do. I want to leave. That's amazing and beautiful. And you certainly raised a young man who's adventurous and obviously very confident in his ability to take care of himself. Yes. Um, and, and he taught himself Portuguese in a month. <laughs> very impressive. Very impressive. Let me ask you about that naming. Cause I'm curious that seems to harken back to some African traditions where babies were not named initially. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know which cultures specifically did this, you know, which tribes specifically did this, but I've read about naming ceremonies. Right. Did you hold an actual naming ceremony after the name was determined? We did. We, okay. we, we did our best to re to do some research and find it. I, I wish we had the internet, you know, and, and <laughs> back we didn't, um, but we did our best. We, we took, uh, we watched Roots again and, and, uh, <laughs> And I had the I had the fortune of uh, while in, in graduate school of getting to know some folks who were Jewish and 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 Muslim and pick up some of the things from some of their traditions. And so, on the at midnight on the eighth day, we took this baby outside. We washed him, took him out in a a white uh, garb, and. Uh, unrobed him and held him up to the heavens and said, behold, the only one greater than you. Just right. the same way that uh, I believe uh, Kunta Kinte was at the beginning mm -hmm. of Roots. Yeah. And, That's and, beautiful. And we were, wrote some words and said some mm -hmm. stuff. And um, my wife's mom was there. And so she was part of the ceremony. And yeah. So when the folks would say, did you baptize? And I'm like, yeah, we did. We, we did something <laughs> on the eighth day. <laughs> I, think that's beautiful. I think that is absolutely beautiful to look, to look back as best as we could pre-internet to look back and really try to construct something that was meaningful. I mean, that's what we've done our whole lives here, right? Generation right. after generation, we've tried to reconstruct our African culture to the extent that we could in this environment. And I think that's so beautiful that you were able to do that. Yeah, we, um, we, yeah, we, we made, I told people, we made a lot of mistakes, um, but we got a few things right. And I think that was certainly one of the things that we got right. The, the naming, naming him, uh, Naim is Arabic, um, Kahari is Swahili, Turner is clearly a slave name. And, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but I, I, and then Bandeli is um, Yoruba, Yorba and it means born away from home. So we were we were set on Bandeli as the last name. We're like, okay, we're definitely naming our child. The last name is gonna be born away from home. 
And I wanted to get rid of Turner altogether. And my mom begged and pleaded with me not to get rid of it. You know, that's your father's mm -hmm. name. And I, I was like, okay, all right. Back <laughs> on it. We'll keep the slave name if we must. So, so we kept it. And my mother was like, no, but why are you going to name your child that? Nobody's going to know how to pronounce his name. Nobody's. I was like, okay. Now it's um, funny. But look back on it and everybody yeah. knows. I, I can imagine your mom feeling the way that she did, especially at that time, you know, because we still come from, because you and I are close in age, we still come from an assimilation generation in a lot of ways. So I want to ask, you're still a revolutionary. I can tell in the way that you speak, <laughs> you're still a revolutionary. Um, how do you hold on to that spirit, especially now? Um, yeah, and we've had recent years where the young kids have been coming out into the streets and whatnot, but for, I mean, you and I went to school with the, the young, young Republicans who are now part of the problem that we have in this country, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I did tag that IMO in case anybody has anything to say about it, but you know, the young Republicans were vicious. I went to school with some of them. So how did you hold on to a revolutionary mindset after all of these years where that was really pushed down? It was all about greed is good, get your coins, you know, focus on getting ahead and don't worry about this other stuff. You can do more once you got your money and all that. Yeah. I, well, part of it is my name. So it's just, I just know there's no escaping that. Um, part of it is, I think we're responsible for, for legacy. So I'll, I'll say this, I, I don't tell people this all the time. So let me slow down a little bit. And my wife says, I can see your brain working. I can hear it. I can hear it when you're talking. So let me slow down. So I, I am an, a fan of the word who. Like Simon Sinek has made the word why, like, oh, you got to know your why. I tell people all the time, I think that's utter nonsense. Only people with privilege talk about why. Mm -hmm. The rest of us should be focused on who. Mm -hmm. Because who is what appears on your tombstone? Who is who, who will appear in your obituary? And who is who will appear in your eulogy? Folks will come and they will speak about who you were. If who you helped, who you served, those are what I said, who you helped, who you served, and who knew that their life mattered because of you. I think that's re what revolutionaries are supposed to do, help serve and make sure people know that they matter. So that's not, that's not lost on me. I, that's been drilled into me from, you know, from the origin of my existence. But moreover, there were people who helped me to be here, for which I could not be here without them. And I can't repay them. Um, four of the five, I call them my starting five, four of those five people are deceased. The fifth one is still living. And there's not an amount of money that I could give her that she would take. Um, and so the only thing that they would ask me to do, right, is to so essentially is to pay it forward. And pay it forward doesn't have anything to do with me living in a big house and driving a nice shiny car or any of that stuff. So pay yeah. it forward is doing what the, what the folks have done best historically, which is, you know, uplifting. That's what I try to do. That's beautiful. So tell me, what are you doing now? Right now, I'm just talking to you. Just <laughs> <wanna know. laughs> 
on a Tuesday on a Tuesday morning, <laughs> having a great time talking to Michelle. Um, what am I doing now? So I still I, I still work in the financial services industry. Um, in case anyone's listening, I, yes, I'm still doing that. <laughs> mostly, um, last two years ago, uh, my family, my wife and son, and I started a not-for-profit called the League of Extraordinary Parents, mm-hmm. and we we had enough enough parents ask us what we had done for our son and wanted to know if it was replicatable. So I backtrack just a little bit, Michelle. So in, in 2014, tw- nine went off to, went off to college. So he left in 2012. He was in Brazil until October of 2013. He had a concussion mm. and came home. I won't say what happened with the medical treatment in Brazil. I just leave it to you to, to imagine. So he came home, we got him tested. He had a, he had a concussion and he had some form of amnesia and um, it changed his personality for like 30 days to 60 days. He was very depressed, et cetera. Anyway, long story short, he decides he's ready to go to college now. He applies to 31 of America's top engineering schools. He gets, gets into 27 of them. Wow. It's more scholarship money than many schools graduating classes get on his own. He goes to school. He goes to Santa Clara University in California. Mm-hmm. He ends up getting his degree in electrical engineering, I think with an emphasis in computer science and, and computer engineering. He then applies for his PhD directly from undergrad. He gets seven PhD fellowships. He's at Carnegie Mellon today. He's a fourth year PhD student in the School of Electrical and Computer Engineering. So so folks would ask us, well, how did you do that, right? You're Mm -hmm. not, you didn't, you're not rich and you didn't, we know you didn't use Adobe Photoshop or any of that stuff. (laughs) And so- You didn't put him on the rowing team? (laughs) I didn't put him on the rowing team. We didn't do any of that stuff, right? He didn't play soccer. One of the things he said when the coaches were trying to recruit me, he said, I don't want to play soccer. I went to Brazil to play professional soccer. I did not come back to America to go to college and play soccer. Right. I, I'm here to now to get my PhD. Wow. Okay. You have to meet him. That's he's very okay. much. Tough. Yes. Um, so folks would ask, well, what did you do? And we tell them, well, when he's before he was born, right? We we didn't name him. We bought language tapes. We played language tapes in his crib. We sang and danced with him. Our first computer we bought was his computer. So we just t- we started telling people the kinds mm-hmm. of stuff that we were doing. And folks said, well, can you do it for other people's children? So we're like, mm-hmm. yeah, we don't see why. So that's what we've been doing the last couple of years is trying to show fa- other families how to backward design their own children's life. Wow. That's amazing. So do you prefer to work with families who are pregnant or going to be pregnant or already have had their kids and named their kids? What, what's your process like? I've, so we've done, we've done both. Mm-hmm. I've worked with, with families who were pregnant or we with families whose children were, you know, very, you, they were to- still toddlers. I worked with a 35 year old, um, five years ago who, who wanted to, yeah, you see that look, she's 35. Uh, she's one of my wife's sororers. Mm-hmm. And she said, Hey, can we, can we stop? I have a soror who's uh, a teacher and she wants to talk to me about educational leadership. I said, sure. So we stopped and the young lady happened to be from Gary. So we had this conversation, long story short, I said, 
well, what is it you are, what is it you want to do with your life? And she says, well, I, I guess I want to be a principal and I just want to have a say in what happens in children's uh, uh, education. And I said, well, you think being a principal is good to say? And she says, well, maybe not. Maybe I should be a superintendent. I said, well, okay, we'll be a superintendent. She says, well, well, how am I going to do that? I would need to get a PhD. I said, well, go and get a PhD. And she said, well, how am I going to get a PhD? I said, well, give me 45 days. I'll show you. And so, wow. so, so we sat down and we backward designed what she wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And last, last month, she earned her PhD at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Wow. And she That's went amazing. on a full ride. And she's done. She's 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 doctor now. So all right. Yeah. So yes, um, I have a young young man we worked with. Started at one. His mom was the one who asked me to first help her son. She says, "Can you help turn my son into you, your son, two point <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, "What?" She says, "Yeah, I, can you? I need my son to do what your son is doing, but I need him." I said, "Okay." So she invited a group of people twice to mm-hmm. an, to this open forum for this discussion about the community. And we mm-hmm. called it Reengineering the Village, where I started to share with folks why we were looking at the world and raising children this way. Mm-hmm. And we started talking about, you know, what's happening with technology that you're not aware of, what's going on with testing, what's going on with endowments with schools, what the projections mm-hmm. are, which, and, and folks are, you know, most of us are looking at me like I was, like I was crazy. Well, her mm-hmm. son, she listened. Her son today speaks Mandarin. He's nine or 10. He's, he, he's fluent in Mandarin. He's also picking up Spanish. He's working on his pilot license. And he's like, <laughs> right. That's so, beautiful. Yeah. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. It just right. really matters if the, if the people are going to be committed to doing the work. That's amazing. I think it's fabulous. And that you were able to help someone at 35 re-engineer her life, you know, kind of, what'd you call it? Backwards, backwards design, backwards design mm-hmm. what she wanted to do so that she could achieve her goals. So it sounds like you've got strong analysis skills, planning. I, I'm, 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 <laughs> well, I'm trying to, I'm trying yeah. to kind of pull, pull out of here what it is, <laughs> what you're doing for, for, with people, because it's not for them. You're doing it with them. Yes. Right. So it sounds like you're, you're taking, you're analyzing what it is they're trying to do, and you're helping them develop a plan for how to get from point A to point Z. Right. Because there are always a bunch of stops in between, particularly when you're younger. Yes. So we, we had, a, I had a group of folks that asked me, mm, maybe it was in March, mm-hmm. if I could help them. So I had 10 adults. <laughs> from from the ages of 25 to 60. And so we I created this course that we did online and we called it Mission 5126. Mm-hmm. Mission in tribute to Harriet Tubman and all the missions that she had to, to help s- slaves become free. And 5126 in respect for um, James Dyson, the inventor of the Dyson vacuum cleaner who had 5,126 failures before he had a success. Wow. So I tell folks, I say, okay, listen, the mission is not just for us to figure out how to get you to where you want to go, but it's to make sure that you're capable of helping someone else. And the 5126 is to understand that it's going to be more failure than Mm -hmm. there's going to be success, but you only need one success. Right. So 
So we sort of worked this this program where we talked about how to get to your North Star and what that was and what was our Death Star determining what that was and have, have helping folks start looking forward, mm -hmm. uh, which is something I do daily. I do this thing called journaling forward. So imagining your best life and then working backwards. That's beautiful. And is that a course that you offer regularly or you just did it that one time and said, oh, we're done. Yeah. So they asked me to do it. And I was like, so they said, well, what are you doing now? And what are you working on now, Nate? And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I've got a book that I'm working on. And, and so I said, they said, okay, well, why don't you, would you show us how to, what you're doing? And I said, okay, fine. So I'm like, I don't really know how to explain it, but, <laughs> but I'll work it out. And each week we would meet on Sunday from three to five and mm -hmm. we would go through these various, various steps. And, and so now they're off doing what it was that they said that they wanted to do, which is that's very interesting to see. That's amazing. So it sounds like you're having an impact in a lot of different ways. Um, I'm, again, I'm going to leave here and, and my responsibility is to lead a planet better than it was when I found it. So that's beautiful. Well, Nate Turner, I don't even know what to say here. You've blown me away with the story, your story of your life, your son's life and all you've accomplished. Um, I know your wife must think you're a handful though. So please send her my regard. Condolences. <laughs> your condolences. Girl, <laughs> I, well, I know this has been a journey. <laughs> she's, like, she's like, please, could you stop talking to me? Like, really? Yeah, yes. Can I can I tell you one 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 final thing? Yeah. So we're we're my son and I are finishing this book. I think this is important to part this community thing we were talking yeah. about. I have this this. And, and my son and I have this hope that one day we can construct a new version of Greenwood, mm. but a version of Greenwood that's available for all people. Mm. And, and we have imagined this community in this book that we wrote called The Amazing World of STEM. Okay. And it's a children's story. And so the young man named STEM is Stuart Tyson Elmo Morgan. And he's named after four African-American scientists, engineers, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But the objective in the story is to show adults what's possible if we decide collectively as a, as, as a humanity to come together and work together. So it's a community That's that great. has 3D printed homes, which we could do today for a little $5,000, but we keep talking about a housing crisis, but here these kids have figured it out. Um, right. I have an energy issue because we're using solar and we're using biofuels. These these children have figured it out. So mm -hmm. they're arrow farms, so we don't have any food deserts in this community because these children have figured it out. And we wanted to use the children because they are, they are in fact, the future. Um, this is my son's generation's responsibility to move forward, although we've messed things up quite a bit, but we've tried to illustrate that through, through the book. I think that's amazing. I Thank you for sharing that. So where can people connect with you and where can they get the book? Uh, you can connect with me anytime. You have my number, but <laughs> I don't. Everybody else, I have a, I have a, I have a website. It's uh, Nathaniel N A T H A N I E L A Turner T U R N E R dot com. That's probably the, the easiest, the easiest way to find me, and it'll link you to everything else that we're doing. I have a blog, Raising Superman S U P A 
M-A-N.com or the, the Raising Superman Project. Um, and so that's, that's where I write. Uh, and we have a YouTube page, et cetera, just like everybody else. Okay. So they can connect to you on social media through your website. Yep. Yep. You can find me on Twitter at Superman's underscore dad and at Instagram at Superman's underscore dad. But I'm not a big social media kind of guy. Um, but we don't have time to talk about my thoughts about social media. <laughs> I'm not a big social media. There are a lot of interesting things about social media. We truly live in interesting times. Yeah, it's a necessary evil, but I, I find it like it's precarious. Like, why don't black folks have their own social media? If you're bothered, why don't we have enough black engineers? My son's an engineer, and there's Nesby, the National Society of Black Engineers. Why, why, why don't y'all have your own? Why don't we have our own uh, platforms? I don't understand that. But anyway, that's a discussion for another time. Another discussion, because it's a lengthy one. That is definitely a lengthy one. Nate Turner, thank you so much for being on thank Somewhere you. in the Middle with Michelle Barrard. Thank you. That's where we live, Michelle, somewhere in the middle. <laughs> <laughs>